Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Anyone but me just kind of need that? Just to slow down, just be still and know that he is God. Anyone but me notice that the pace of life just seems to be accelerating? That what it takes to keep the plates spinning just gets faster and faster and faster. You know, Amazon, the company that started in 1994 as a bookseller, remember that? Has, they've grown to become one of the largest companies in the world. Why? Fast ordering, fast deliveries, and fast and easy returns. So like Am- Amazon has branched out into almost every product market imaginable, has gained over 100 million Amazon Prime subscribers. There's a company in Manhattan called Clouder. Uh, Clouder offers busy people the luxury of getting a coffee delivered to your desk at work. Uh, Rather than tracking down a cafe and waiting in line for your order, you can log on to Clouder, uh, click a few buttons, and have your coffee delivered to your seat at work. No Wait was a company bought by Yelp for $40 million and is now Yelp waitlist a way to check in, uh, check wait times at restaurants and get in line remotely. Uh, you can get a text when your table is ready. Uh, anything that makes life faster is a winning strategy for business. A man writes about his experience with a car dealership. For more than 20 years, I had been doing business with the same car dealership. The people were friendly, and more importantly, they were located not far from my office. So if I had to drop the car off for service, I could walk to work if no loaner was available. One day, however, I happened to be driving past a competing dealership, and I saw a beautiful new car in the showroom window. I just had to stop and look at it, but I was upfront with the salesman and told him I would ultimately buy from my regular dealership because it was so conveniently close to my work at home. And that's when he upped the convenience game. He told me that anytime my car needed any kind of service, he would have a new car delivered to my home for me to use until my car was ready. He said, the next time you come back to this dealership, won't be for an oil change, it'll be to buy your next car. And he bought his next car at that dealership and he's been a loyal customer ever since. From Alexa to Uber to smart thermostats to DoorDash, I mean, these companies that make our lives faster and easier are changing the world. Mark Zuckerberg uh, has a saying, move fast and break things. Unless you're breaking stuff, you're not moving fast enough. And I was thinking about that this week. Uh, That works for some jobs. Uh, But there are jobs that does not work for. Uh, Like a FedEx driver. Like no one's telling a FedEx driver, uh, move fast and break stuff. Uh, Or it wouldn't work for a food server. It wouldn't work for a massage therapist. Can you think of other things it wouldn't work for? Some of you are probably going to be thinking about that for the rest of this message and not what I'm talking about. You're welcome. Uh, In 1967, expert uh, testimony was given to the United States uh, Senate. They said technology, 
So labor-saving, time-saving technology was going to change the way Americans work. They said within a couple decades, people would be working 32 weeks on average in a year. Uh, or they would be working 20 hours a week on average. Or they would retire by the time they were 40 years old. Because we would save all this time through technology. They said to the United States Senate that within a couple decades, the number one challenge Americans would face with regard to time was, what do I do with all of my excess time? Now, it's five decades later. Let me ask you, is your primary challenge when it comes to time like, what do I do with all of it that I have left over? About the same time, a new kind of restaurant became very popular in American culture, a restaurant, restaurant for the first time in human history uh, who sold food, not on the basis of its quality, uh, not even on the basis of its price, but on the basis of the speed in which it was served. And we coined a phrase for those kinds of restaurants. We called them fast food. Fast food. Not good food, not even cheap food, just fast. Our world is not slowing down. Our world is constantly trying to find ways to make us go faster. I mean, we will pay for almost anyone or anything that will make our lives go faster. Now, do things get slower, better, and more peaceful at Christmas time? Stores and airports are crowded. Traffic and parking gets worse. I mean, there's the parties and cards and shopping and eating. I mean, around Christmas time, if anything, it gets worse. And so we're going to do something a little different today. I'm going to ask you to confess before everyone here today if you um, suffer from this hurry sickness. All right, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand and confess. Um, if you're really convicted about this, you might want to stand up. It might be good for your heart and soul, just get it off your chest. And so I'm going to ask you if you've ever experienced hurry to actually raise your hand, okay? Uh, no, not yet, not yet. See, that's kind of what happens. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Like people saying, you know, I, I know where you're going with this. Don't waste our time. Let's just get on with it. Just indulge me for a second here. Let me describe it, and then I'll cue you in a second, okay? If you suffer from this hurry sickness, um, you just don't have enough time in the day. When you come to a stoplight and there are two lanes and there's one car in each of those lanes, if you have this sickness, you find yourself calculating which car is going to be faster. I mean, you try to assess by the make and the model of the car and things like that, like which car is going to pull away faster and then you get behind that car if you have this disease. Uh, when you're finished shopping and you look at the checkout lines, you count how many people are in the line, so, so you know which is the shortest line. Uh, some of you actually calculate how much stuff is in each of the carts um, and then decide which lane is going to be the fastest lane. And if you're really sick, um, when you get in line, you keep track of who you would have been in the next line. And you watch, and you watch as that person goes through the line and you see who would have been faster um, and you mentally pressure the people in front of you to go faster. And if the person who would have been you gets through the line faster, you go away sad because you lost. <laughs> if you have this sickness, uh, you have to be multitasking all the time. 
You're driving a car, you're drinking coffee, you're listening to a podcast, you're talking on the phone, you're signaling, you're making emotionally cathartic gestures all at the same time. <laughs> all right, so now it's confession time. Uh, show of hands, how many of you would say, I suffer from this kind of hurry sickness? All right. How many of you just want me to hurry up and get on with the message? <laughs> so I want to ask you today to consider the possibility that your greatest need in life might not be for someone to come along and say, I can help you make your life go faster. A man comes home from work every day. He's always carrying a briefcase. And his son notices this, and day after day, you know, his, his son finally says to his dad, Dad, how can you bring your briefcase home every day? And his dad says, well, son, it's because I can't get all my work done at the office. And his, dad says, his son says, well, dad, can't they put you in a slower group? So I want to invite you to do a radical thing today to consider the possibility that maybe you need to be put in a slower group. Maybe. You know, Jesus is talking to a group of people who are tempted to just kind of throw their life away on stuff that does not matter and won't last. And so in typical fashion, he tells a story. And the story is in Luke 12, uh, 13 to 21, if you want to read it sometime later today. Uh, what I want to do is I want to retell this story in the way that it might get told today, in 2019. This is an edited version of a story that John Orberg wrote on this passage. It's a story about a guy who was busy. Uh, he was committed, um, and he was willing to do whatever it took, and it would take everything. And so he finds himself, this guy who was in the agricultural business, consumed by his work. Uh, this entrepreneur puts in 12-hour days he works weekends, he joins uh, professional organizations and boards of directors to kind of expand his contacts. And even when he's not working, he finds his mind drifting toward work. So he's not just uh, in an occupation, this work has become his preoccupation. His wife often tries to slow him down to remind him that he's got a family, and vaguely he's aware of the fact that his kids are growing up and he's missing it. And from time to time, they... Uh, complain about books that they want him to read or games, that, uh, games of catch that they want to play. But eventually, after enough books not read and games not played, they stop complaining because they just stop expecting it. And he says to himself that he'll become more available to important people of his life six months from now or when things settle down. And that's one of his favorite phrase, phrases, when things settle down. And although he's a very bright guy, this man in Jesus' story, he seems... He, he notices that, you know, he never seems to notice that things don't slow down. And so he says to himself when he's feeling guilty, you know, I'm doing this all for my family anyway. He woke up one night at 1 o'clock in the morning and he felt this twinge in his chest and so his wife made an appointment with the doctor and they told him that he actually had a slight heart attack. And they warned him all the symptoms are there, elevated blood pressure, cholesterol levels and so on, and he's got to make some changes in his life. And so for a while he does, he starts working on his health. He goes to an exercise program at the gym. He stops eating so much red meat and Doritos. But when the symptoms go away, his motivation to change goes away too. He says to himself, you know, I just don't have the time for all this stuff. He says, I'll get around to it when things settle down, when things settle down. He recognizes that his life is out of balance. His wife tries to get him to go to church with her, and he intends to, but when Sunday morning rolls around, it feels to him like that's the only time of the week where he has to rest. 
Besides, he says, you know, I can believe without going to church. He says, there will be time for that when things settle down. One day, the CEO of his company comes to see him and tells him, you're not going to believe this, but business is exploding, so much so that we can't keep up with it. We're on the brink of a miracle. I mean, this is our chance to make it big, and if we catch this wave, we'll be set for life. But it's going to take some major changes. We've got inventory problems that you wouldn't believe. Demand is outstripping supply. Our software is outdated. And if we don't overhaul this whole company from top to bottom, it'll be a disaster. Now, from that moment on, this man is just consumed. And every waking moment is devoted to this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And that night, he goes home to his wife, all excited, and he says, you know what this means, don't you? Like, once we get through this project, we can relax. Our future will be assured, we'll be set for life, because I know the market, I've covered every base, I've anticipated every contingency, we'll finally have financial security, and we'll be able to take those vacations that you've always wanted. But she had heard this song before, and she learned not to get her hopes up. 11 o'clock that night, she said, you know, I'm going to bed. Do you want to come with me? He said, I've got a little more work to do, uh, but you go ahead. I'll be up in a few minutes. At 3 o'clock in the morning, she wakes up alone in bed. She's, he's still not there, and she says to herself, this is ridiculous. She goes downstairs to drag him up, and he's sitting at the table in front of the computer, his head resting on the table. And she says to herself, it's like being married to a child. He would rather fall asleep down here than go up and go to bed. And she touches him on the shoulder to wake him up, but he doesn't respond, and his skin is cold to the touch. She calls 911, and she has this panicky feeling in the pit of her stomach, and by the time the paramedics get there and check him out, they tell her that he had a massive heart attack, and he had been dead for hours. His death is a major story in the financial community. His obituary is written up in Forbes and Wall Street Journal. It's too bad he was dead because he would have loved to read what they wrote about him. And when they had a memorial service for him, everyone in the community came because of his prominence. And they all filed past his casket, and they all made the same stupid comment that people always make at funerals. He looks so peaceful. Rigor mortis will do that to you. I mean, it just happens. And people get up to eulogize him at the service. You know, he was one of the leading entrepreneurs of the day, one of them says he was an innovator in technology and delivery systems, says another. He was a man of principles, someone else said. And he was a straight arrow guy. He would never cheat on his taxes. He would never cheat on his expense account or his wife. Another one said he had all kinds of civic achievements. He was a pillar in the community. He knew everybody. He was a networker. And then they all got together and they had a memorial constructed for him. And they wrote inspiring words on it to try to summarize his life, entrepreneur, innovator, leader, visionary, pillar, success. And they buried him, and they put up the memorial, and they all went home. And then when it was dark and there was no one around to observe, then unseen, unheard, came the angel of God to the cemetery and made his way through all of the graves to the grave of this man, and there traced with a finger the single word that God chose to summarize the meaning of this man's life. You know what it was? Fool. You fool, God says. Now you have to ask yourself, why did Jesus use such a strong word to describe him? I mean, fool is a strong word. 
I would say Jesus here is not engaging in name-calling, but he's making a tragically accurate diagnosis. That for all of this man's entrepreneurial acumen, for all of his ability to run cost-benefit analysis and cash flow projections, there's one scenario that he had forgotten to account for in in all of his forecasts. And you know what it was? It was his death. He forgot to consider the possibility that somewhere along the line, he might die. And God stands amazed at the foolishness of a human being who painstakingly prepares for every contingency, covers the basis of every eventuality, however unlikely, and forgets the one inevitable certainty that stares all of us in the face from the moment we were born, which is we are going to die. He neglected to plan for the most obvious and predictable event in human existence. So what other word, Jesus asked, can you use to describe behavior as irrational as that? So busy building up his little kingdom that he had no time for the kingdom of God. So busy making a living that he didn't have time to make a life. Two illusions prop up the lives of rich fools like this guy and like a lot of us. One of them is contained in the little phrase, when things settle down. And the illusion is, someday, life will slow down and there will be time to get around to the important things. Listen, Blue Oaks, do you know when life will settle down? When you die. When they put you in the ground, things will settle way down. But until that day, it's not likely that there is going to be a change in your life that's going to allow you to have so much time that you're going to be able to invest in all the important things. You know, our mission as a church is to lead everyone into Christ-centered living. Well, if you look at the life of Jesus, you'll see a person who was never in a hurry. He was often busy. He often had a lot of things to do. But as he went through life... He arranged his life in such a way, he carved out time uh, for solitude and prayer and uh, in such a way that as he went through his life, he was always available every moment to God, the Father. He was always uh, able to be led by the Spirit. He was always able to love the people that came into his life. He was never in a hurry. Listen, things are not going to settle down. You have to make a choice that you are going to slow your life down if you want to live the kind of life that God has for you. The second illusion that props up the lives of rich fools is this. Someday more will be enough. This guy kept thinking, you know, I've, uh, if I just have more, but just have bigger barns. The writers of Scripture say something interesting about contentment. Contentment is a learned skill. It's actually an attitude. In other words, it's not the case that eventually, someday, I'll have enough stuff and I'll be content. If I'm ever going to be content, I must learn to be content in the midst of what I'm dealing with right now. Do any of you read the cartoon Peanuts, Charlie Brown? Well, one of them, Snoopy is sitting on his doghouse. It's Thanksgiving, and Snoopy is upset because Charlie Brown and his family are celebrating Thanksgiving with a huge turkey dinner, and Snoopy is stuck out in the doghouse with dog food. And then he reflects on this a little bit, and he says to himself, it could be worse. I could have been born a turkey. 
Now, if you don't take anything away from this today, I just want you to take away those four words. It could be worse. I want you to remember those four words, and so I'm going to ask you to say them out loud with me, okay? So would you say them out loud? It could be worse. Say them with some passion. It could be worse. Now, when you leave church today and you go out to your car that's in the parking lot, you're going to be tempted to think, you know, if I had someone else's car, if I had a bigger car, a nicer car, a newer car, a more expensive car, then I would be content. But today, you're not going to do that because today, when you go out to your car, you're going to say to yourself with great passion, it could be worse. When you drive to where it is, wherever it is that you live, your apartment, your house, uh, you're going to get to the door, you're going to put your hand on the doorknob, and you may be tempted to think if you had someone else's house. You may be tempted to think if I lived in a home that was bigger or nicer or newer or more expensive, then I would be content. Then I would have enough. But not today. Today, when you walk up to that door, you're going to say to yourself with great passion, it could be worse. Tomorrow morning when you wake up and roll over and look at your spouse, you're going to say, <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> don't say that. Because it could be worse. <laughs> Scott mentioned last week how 400 families in our community were able to shop at the toy shop this year and provide Christmas gifts for their kids uh, that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to provide. Uh, the toy shop is an effort to help people who are living in poverty in the Tri-Valley. It could be worse. You know, we want to make a difference as a church. And one of the ways you become rich toward God is to use money the way that God would use money. To give money to people for whom it could not be worse. Uh, because there are people in this world for whom it could not be worse. And so if you attend Blue Oaks regularly, if this is your church, it would be well worth considering being part of giving to people for whom it could not be worse. Now, I just want to be very careful about this. I'm not saying, I am not saying that to be effective or successful in business is a bad thing. Please hear me on this. It's a good thing. It can be a wonderful calling and enrich the lives of many, many people. But here's a lesson people in our society have got to learn. I remember hearing a psychologist use an analogy that kind of stuck with me. It's about playing the game Monopoly. I learned how to play Monopoly when I was growing up in a family of six. Um, early in my marriage, Kathy banned me from playing Monopoly with our friends because I was the most ruthless Monopoly player you can imagine. Uh, I rem remember playing Monopoly every day when I was a kid. I learned Monopoly was about this commitment to acquisition. Uh, I understood that money was how you keep score, and, and the possessions were all that mattered. It was a matter of survival, and I played to win. I was relentless. Monopoly does strange things to people. <laughs> but one thing I learned from Monopoly is this. James Dobson talks about this. He talks about learning this lesson with Monopoly when he played Monopoly growing up in his family. And uh, John Orberg has written a book on this title, um, and that is that we all learn this sooner or later that at the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. All of the houses and hotels, all the boardwalk and park place, all the railroads and utilities, all the wonderful money, like it all goes back in the box. None of it is mine. It doesn't belong to me. I don't own any of it. I just get to use it for a little while, and then it all goes back in the box. You see, 
this man in Jesus' story was a shrewd guy. Like he learned to play the game. He played it well. He was a master of the board, but he forgot this one thing. The game would end. And the game always ends. Sooner or later, it all goes back in the box. You know, a business person is out for a run and feels a sudden pain in his chest. In an instant, it all goes back in the box. A teenager is driving a car and someone misses a stop sign, and in an instant, it all goes back in the box. The doctor says it's malignant. And in a hospital bed, in an instant, it all goes back in the box. House, car, title, clothes, toys, they all go back in the box. Filled barns, bulging portfolios, even your body goes back in the box. And so Jesus says, you have to ask yourself, what is it that matters? Like, what is it in this life that's worth giving your life to? This story, Jesus tells, gets lived out millions of times every day. And you don't even have to believe in the Bible to see it. You just have to kind of look around you. Uh, Ray Johnston, the pastor up at Bayside, he wrote a book called Jesus Called, He Wants His Church Back. Um, it's about an, he, he writes about another person, and this is what he says about this other person describing him. He says, all he ever wanted was more. He wanted more money, so he transformed inherited wealth into a billion-dollar pile of assets. He wanted more fame, so he broke into the Hollywood scene and soon became a filmmaker and star. He wanted more sensual pleasures, so he paid handsome sums to indulge in every sexual urge. He wanted more thrills, so he designed and built and piloted the fastest aircraft in the world. He wanted more power, so he secretly dealt uh, political favors so skillfully that two presidents became his pawns. All he ever wanted was more. He was absolutely convinced that more would bring him true satisfaction. Unfortunately, history shows otherwise. Emaciated, colorless, sunken chest, grotesque, rotting fingernails, black teeth, tumors, innumerable needle marks from his drug addiction. Howard Hughes died believing the myth of more. He died a billionaire junkie, insane by all reasonable standards. Now, here's a question I just want us to consider. If Howard Hughes had pulled off one more deal, had earned one more million, had experienced one more thrill, would that have been enough? As we're getting ready to celebrate Christmas, you know, if I were to give my three, my three kids a credit card and drop them off at the mall and say, buy whatever you want, like acquire, buy whatever you want, do you think that would be enough? Do you think that would make them happy? I guess we'll never know, will we? Uh, <laughs> Jesus says, how far do you have to walk down the road before you realize where it leads? Surely you'll understand, he says, it will never be enough because it all goes back in the box. This is what Jerry Seinfeld wrote about boxes uh, quite a while ago. He said, to me, life boils down to one significant thing, movement. To live is to keep moving. Unfortunately, this means for the rest of our lives, we're going to be looking for boxes. When you're moving, your whole world is boxes. That's all you think about, boxes. Where are the boxes? You just wander down the street, go into an, uh, a store. Are there boxes here? Have you seen any boxes? That's all you think about. You could be at a funeral. Everyone around you is mourning, crying, and you're looking at the casket. That's a really nice box. Does anyone know where that guy got that box? Do you think he'll give it to me when he's done? It has some really nice handles on it. I mean, that's what death is really, the last big move of your life. The hearse is like the van. 
the pallbearers are your close friends, the only ones who would be really uh, willing to help in a big move like that. And this casket is the great, big, perfect box that you've been looking for your whole life. Well, Christmas is coming this week, and you're going to be unwrapping a lot of boxes, and there's going to be a lot of really nice stuff in a lot of those boxes. But remember when you open them, someday it's all going back in the box. You see, all of the hurrying, all of the accumulating that our lives become oriented around involves a form of denial, Jesus is saying. And to be fundamental, to, to the fundamental reality uh, of life that we deny, and that is, we're going to die. There's a simple two-word question that we tend not to ask, and the question is, then what? That's a question the guy in Jesus' story never asked. Uh, when I finally have enough, when my barn is finally completely full, when I'm financially secure, then what? You have to ask yourself, you know, when you finally get the ultimate promotion, when you finally make that ultimate purchase, when you finally have the ultimate home, when you've stored up financial security, when you've climbed the ladder of success to the highest rung that could be climbed, and all the thrill wears off, because it eventually all wears off. You have to ask yourself, then what? What do you do with a cold marriage or one that has failed altogether? What do you do with children who learned early on that they're not as important as a briefcase or a meeting or a barn full of stuff? What do you do with people who should be your close friends who don't even know you? Not really. What do you do when you discover your life has no vision or meaning? How important will all of that stuff be then? Jesus is asking, don't you know how quickly life passes by? Don't you understand? It all goes back in the box. You know, every once in a while, something happens that will kind of pierce our denial or our defenses. When I started studying to get in, involved in ministry, the person who God brought into my life to be one of my best friends was a guy named Ron Jones. Uh, Ron and I journeyed in a ministry together for 20 plus years. We studied in college and graduate school together in Chicago and then uh, both moved to California where we were pastors. And if I had to come up with a short list of people who, to me, loved Jesus and just wanted to serve him with their lives, he would be on that list. And I mention this because on December 8th of 2012, Ron died of cancer. Uh, Ron faced a moment that every one of us will face one day. And ultimately, the question is, then what? Ron was one of the most gifted and well-connected people I knew, um, and he never used any of it for himself. Uh, he never became rich, although he could have. Uh, he never accumulated much in the way of power. He just devoted his life to knowing Christ and growing like him and helping other people to know him. And I think as far as it's possible to know this about another human being, that when he faced God on that day, he heard from God, well done. You lived your life wisely. I think that's what he heard. Now, I don't mean to be melodramatic about this, but I think there's a great danger in our society of avoiding or denying the ultimate reality. And so I just want to ask you, if today was your day, if this was the day your soul was going to be demanded of you, which it will one day, if God were to write a single word to summarize your life, what would that word be? You see, because 
you don't want to get to the point where you realize you wasted your life on a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. So remember the guy in Jesus' story. Remember that things will not settle down. Remember that more is never enough. And remember what we celebrate this week, that it's God sending his son, Jesus Christ, who lived and taught and died for the forgiveness of our sins and was resurrected to be that gift that would last forever. Because the one thing in all this world that's not going back in the box is your soul and mine. All right, let's pray as the band comes to lead us in a closing song. God, we're so grateful for the, the gift of your son. And uh, God, we are so rich in so many ways, but we are so foolish in so many ways. And so God, would you just help us not to run after that which doesn't matter and cannot last? God, would you help us spend our lives becoming rich toward you? And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.